inspires the women shaping the world we live in? Women whose names will one day be read in history books by future generations of women seeking inspiration. I'm your host, Rachel Thompson, senior reporter at Mashable. British journalism is 94% white and 55% male. That absence of diversity matters. It's reflected in the types of stories that are commissioned, the opinions that are championed, and the news that we're told to care about. Galdem is a UK publication written by women and non-binary people of colour, and it's actively trying to redress this imbalance and take control of the way people of colour are portrayed in the media. Founded by Liv Little in 2015, Galdem's mission statement is clear, to empower and support young women and non-binary people of colour, to disrupt racist stereotypes, and shine a light on stories and experiences that matter. Two women playing a vital role in doing that are Galdem journalists Charlie Brinkhurst-Cuff and Leah Cowan. So my name is Charlie Brinkhurst-Cuff. I'm the head of editorial at Galdem, um, which is a magazine written by uh, women and non-binary people of colour. And I'm Leah Cowan. I'm Galdem's politics editor. Um, and I also work at another organisation called IMCON, a black feminist organisation dedicated to addressing violence against women and girls. Yeah, thank you both for coming in today. I'm very excited to chat to you. The title of your book is I Will Not Be Erased. Um, and in the editor's letter, the book is described as the book we wish had existed when we were growing up because so many of us felt the sting of erasure when we were young, quote unquote. Um, and I wanted to ask you both um, what this statement, um, I Will Not Be Erased, means to both of you on an individual level. I guess... For me, on an on an individual level, um, it's a powerful way of sort of proclaiming that we are going to keep telling the stories of marginalised voices. Growing up, like, I love storytelling and I sort of love reading and writing. And it was that classic thing of sort of reading Enid Blyton's The Famous Five and not realising that there was, like, lots of racism in it. And um, and also, like, in my own stories as well, sort of not even being able to conceptualise characters who were like me to the point where I would be writing about little blonde white girls all the time. Um, and, yeah, it, you know, erasure happens for young women of colour, you know, to this day in all aspects of your life. I was, like, in Tesco <laughs> yesterday, and I was just watching this little black girl, like... Um, in front of this whole, it's like that classic image you've probably seen before. It's in front of this whole row of uh, Barbies. Um, um. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they, they, you know, even in an area like Peckham, which has like a huge population of like West African people, especially, um, there was just like no, not even one black Barbie. I know this is, you know, it's mm. a, a minor concern compared to like a lot of the actual impacts of erasure, but, um, but it just yeah, it got, it got me thinking again about how important it is to to see yourself to be reflected. Um, something we talk about a lot at Galdem. Yeah, I think I feel similarly. I think for me, the kind of macro level of it is about representation as a vehicle towards the bigger change that we want to see in the world. But I think another layer of it for me, like maybe another reading of the title, "I Will Not Be Erased," is about us as um, writers, editors, kind of acknowledging our own processes um, and not. That there's a kind of temptation to see people who are doing things as people who just like were born editing and born doing their thing. Um, whereas for me, this book is a lot about the processes of growth that we all had to go through and about the necessity to not erase those processes so other mm -hmm. young people can kind of read those too. Like none of us are perfect and we've yeah. all had 
different struggles and different journeys of learning and I think erasing that is a bit of a mistake sometimes yeah no I totally agree with that actually and I think it's it's like a very vulnerable book isn't it Mm. like it is literally all of our writers of bearing their souls and like really explaining where their journeys began and Mm -hmm. everyone in this book is so like they've had so had so many achievements but we all started somewhere yeah Yeah. radical vulnerability yeah Yeah. Um, and there's a question that I am asking every single guest that comes on the podcast, and this is another question for both of you, but is there a particular female activist from history or even from the present day who's had a profound effect on you? I think the person that always springs to mind, she's quite iconic, is Angela Davis. And I can explain a bit about her background if that's Please. useful. Yeah. yeah, so she's um, an activist and an academic. She's been around for a while doing her thing. Um, but she kind of came to prominence in the 60s during the, the kind of civil rights um, era. She was arrested and charged with first degree murder because she was accused of buying guns, which were then used in the armed takeover of a courtroom where three men called the Soledad brothers were being tried for under the accusation of having killed a, a white prison guard in a prison. And some activists took over the courtyard and took the judge and some of the jurors hostage. And in the kind of melee in the scuffle, the judge and three other men were killed. Um, So because Angela had purchased firearms that then were later used in that um, incident, she was charged with first degree murder. And she was on the FBI's um, 10 most wanted list and people were calling for her to face the death penalty. And she kind of went on the run and then was tracked down by the FBI. And there was this massive kind of global outpouring of support for her um, because she was such a principled uh, upholder of kind of uh, civil rights and uh, black power. And I think there were 200 different groups across the US that were supporting uh, the kind of Free Angela campaign. And I think 67 countries across the world had their own campaigns in support of her um and when she was tried she was found not guilty so she then went on to become an academic a professor a writer she wrote a load of books that are brilliant um she founded an organization called critical resistance which is a grassroots um prison abolition organization that is still going on doing amazing work so she's had this incredible like span of activity that really blew up in this really um heated and intense way and like still continues to do the work and she's just an incredible like tour de force of uh, activism have you seen her speak Claire? yeah i have, have seen you? her speak yeah it was incredible she like walked on stage and people were just like on their feet like like she was like a rock star people yeah. were just uh she's incredible but she's also very very humble and she really acknowledged that the whole campaign around her um arrest and her trial wasn't about her necessarily like she was a bit of a lightning rod for a moment of talking about um you know criminal injustice and police brutality and it was actually the actions of people all over the world supporting her campaign that were fundamental to that she's not really interested in in her own iconhood which i think is a really like um humbling and inspiring position for her to hold um, and Charlie, what about you? Um, but I was I was just thinking um, about uh, some of the community activists that I've come across um, over the past year, especially working um, uh, on issues around Windrush. And although 
her activism perhaps hasn't impacted as many people as like Angela's has, for instance. Um, Myrna Simpson is the mother of a uh, woman who passed away in the 90s called Joy Gardner. And I, I've been speaking about this case quite a lot recently because I feel like it's really been underreported. Um, but she, Joy Gardner died uh, during a botched deportation attempt or um, I think officially she died in hospital afterwards and um, her mother since then has been campaigning to try and get justice for her. Um, She was part of a film called Justice for Joy Um, and she's just the most incredible speaker and um, has really as of late sort of made the connections between what happened to Joy back in 1993 and what's been happening today with Mm. the Windrush scandal. Um, I think that the other reason why she is, the other reason why it frustrates me that she's not more well known is because the case in 1993 um, with Joy, I think it happened maybe two months after the death of Stephen Lawrence. Oh, wow. Mm. Um, So they're they're very comparable timelines and like, um, and it's funny how it it feels like we can only sustain Mm. in our media landscapes of one older black woman who's talking about the death of their child um so yeah yeah that's just because because our audience is quite u.s based Mm -hmm. would it be all right to just go into a little bit of could you just contextualize that stephen lawrence um so so stephen lawrence um was murdered um by a gang of white youths as far as i'm aware Mm. um and um his mother doreen lawrence held a incredibly successful eventually the successful campaign to bring his killers to justice which stretched from yeah 1993 all the way up until the early 2000s mm. um i think she's now been awarded an mbe and she's just very very well known as like this like incredible campaigner um i think she, she you know his inquest was res- resolved etc um in comparison joy's inquest um so she overstayed her visa from jamaica however her mother lived in the uk legally and when joy came here she was also lived in the country legally she mm. had a baby here um and then when the deportation officers came to her door they bound her up in like meters of tape they um wow. like you know they they really manhandled her her five-year-old son was was in the house with her as well and i think he witnessed the whole thing um and then she was yeah she obviously became very ill, was taken to hospital. Um, and that's where her sort of mum found her th- that same day. Uh, like she, she describes her as being like sort of covered in like, like baking foil. And they were telling her that Joy was still alive, but she could sort of see that she was already dead. Um, and yeah, anyway, so an, an inquest was opened, I think at the end of the nineties for Joy, but it was closed and it's never been reopened. And since then the sort of conversation on, uh, deportations in this country has really just not moved on far enough we we have um some companies such as i think virgin is that right stopped doing deportation stopped, yeah. flights as of last year mm-hmm. um but there's been another campaign for british airways who still takes people off to on charter flights to um to you know the caribbean or mm-hmm. you know parts of africa or wherever um this hostile environment is attempting to send people back to um and yeah, I just think it, it that case just really for me just like isolates like just how messed up it is that we think that it's okay to um, to send people back to places that they 
no longer regarded as their home. Hmm. Um, yeah. And you say, like, you did air quotes around yeah. back yeah. because often people are deported or removed to countries that they've never lived in or where they don't speak the language or they don't know anyone who lives there. They have nowhere to stay. So people are removed from their social and community networks in the UK to a country mm. where they are destitute and face the stigma of the process of being deported to mm. a place. There's a lot of stigma around that in a lot of places. So, yeah, it's a very dehumanizing process. And I think that's what comes out so much in Joy's case that the um, UK border force or whatever they were called back in mm. the 90s just didn't like see her as a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, and the way that she was brutalized is yeah. yeah really representative of that. She was, I think they sort of tried to paint her as being this, like the reason they gave for treating her the way they did was that she was like a like angry black woman yeah. stereotype. They sort of described her as being like inhumanly strong. Like that was one of the like things they did to try and like make it seem okay mm -hmm. that they had done to her what they did. But I think the what the one thing that I think came out of her case, you might want to fact check this, um, is that I think they got rid of the use of um certain types of bindings. Right. Um like after Joy passed away. Um, but there's still really horrible things that like police officers have, or like officers of the law in this country have like, are able to use like from like, have you seen those spit? Yeah, um, spit hoods. hoods and yeah. all sorts of horrible things that really like, especially f for black people, like just the, the imagery of it, like really makes yeah. you, makes you think of- um, It's very reminiscent of yeah. slavery, slavery images. Yeah, yeah for sure. And Leah, in your essay, you talk about a moment in your life that awoke an interest in politics. Um, and I, I really love this quote, actually, when you say um, in, in the book, um, if you'd been asked before this moment, if you're interested in politics, I would have rolled my eyes and written a comment about you in my lockable diary. Um, I love a lockable diary. <laughs> I had so many. Um, and so, yeah, and you, you thought that um, when you were 13 that politics was something that happened to other people. Mm. Um, and I wonder if you could just kind of tell us what changed and what what was that political awakening for you? Mm. I think, yeah, as a 13-year-old or however old I was when I was writing that diary entry, like when people talk about politics, it felt like a very disconnected like it felt like a subject that was very disconnected that wasn't a subject that was taught in my school because I went to a kind of pretty middle of the road like state school mm. um and you know I'd seen stuff on tv of like men and on those green benches in the house of commons like barking at each other and like engaging each other in with each other in this really weird way that made no sense to me and then you know I saw newspapers and there were things that didn't make sense and lots of jargon so as a child I was just like oh that's not like information for me mm. but then yeah my essay is about the um Iraq war protests that happened in some schools up and down the country in 2003 when the invasion was announced um and about a moment of realizing that politics is a much more like nebulous widespread thing that affects every aspect of your daily life whether you like it or not and whether you engage in it in that way or not um, and there's that kind of quote that does the rounds about how if you're um, if you have the ability to say like oh I don't you know I want to check out of politics I don't want to read the news and I'd like it's too much and I don't want to get it. I mean obviously people can take time out because it is too much but <laughs> if you have the ability to say that you don't want to engage in politics then that just alludes to the level of privilege that you have that maybe you don't need to like be concerned about things like universal credit or 
austerity or what the government's doing or whether you're getting your pay frozen because you're a nurse in the NHS and if you don't have to be concerned about those issues then like that's great for you you're like you're probably having a really fun life (laughs) um so yeah it was a process of realizing that politics was about me whether I liked it or not and then the title of that essay um that you are strong because your voice always matters comes from a Jamaican saying would you be able to tell me a bit about what that statement means to you and why why you chose that particular one as the title of the essay yeah Talawa is a, a patois phrase from Jamaica which um kind of describe someone who might appear like small and weak but has like a, a hidden strength um so the bigger phrase is like we are little but we talawa yeah 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 um so yeah it's about that hidden strength and I think it it fit in really well with the essay that I wrote because it's about the you know adults in my school the teachers looking at us as children and thinking that we couldn't possibly have any like of our own ideas or any political agency and we, if we're protesting about the Iraq war, it must just be because we don't want to be in lessons as opposed to like actually caring about something. Um, and I think in the essay, I say it wasn't necessarily that everyone there even knew what the Iraq war was or like that was why they were there. But there's something about protesting against the establishment if you're like a working class kid growing up in a like a shitty West Midlands town. Can I say shitty on a podcast? Please do. <laughs> I also came from the West Midlands. Oh, so. <laughs> well, I loved it. But, you yeah, know, we yeah. failed her off stairs no, like five shit. times in yeah. the <laughs> um, There's something about that environment that, like, maybe makes you want to rile against the people who are telling you what to do in general, um, mm-hmm. even if you don't specifically understand the ins and outs of, like, what the weapons of mass destruction are or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's about a kind of a caution, I guess, to adults to not underestimate that children have political thoughts and ideas and actions. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we're speaking about this sort of, what, two days after Greta Thunberg's talk as well, like to the UN. Um, So it feels like more relevant than ever, really, your essay. Um, Yeah, it seems like a lot of, especially middle-aged men are so triggered by like a young teenage girl that's speaking truth to power and talking more sense than anybody has in decades. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm I mean I'm sure Greta is taking it as like a sign that she's doing her job if someone like Donald Trump is tweeting mm-hmm. and like showing that he's salty about the fact that she's just standing up and talking about something she cares about. Yeah. She's so young and um yeah. the floodgates have really been opened for for criticism towards her because of what a public platform she has now. Mm-hmm. Um and she will make mistakes, like yeah, and probably quite big ones because she is so young and like yeah. she's got a lot of learning to do like um but I don't you know she's doing an amazing thing and like I think especially I think for our community of like people of color um we are very we were very quick to recognize that yes this is like a young like white girl she has privilege in that sense um but I think the way in which we sort of not counteract that but like that we can uplift other Mm. like you know especially indigenous activists yeah. um, alongside her rather than like attempting to like sort of tear her down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's just a not little, little side note there. No, not <laughs> at all. No need to apologise. Um, so yeah, actually, Charlie, the next question is for you. Um, so you edited a book called Mother Country, Real Stories of the Windrush Children mm-hmm. and your reporting often explores the Windrush generation. Um, and I, I read one of your pieces that um, talked about how women have been notably absent from the from Windrush narratives. Mm-hmm. And um, 
yeah, I wondered why why you think that is. Um, I mean, obviously, the sort of simplest answer is a combination of sexism and racism. Um, but it, you know, it's um, it's. I think we have to look look firstly back at where the conception of Windrush came from, um, and yes, there was a big boat that came <laughs> over in um, in the nineteen forties. But it wasn't the first boat, and um, there were always women on board these ships. But the reporting, even at that time, uh, was inaccurate. So the Evening Standard, I think, reporting that you know 400 Jamaican men are coming off this ship, for, you know, the Windrush, and coming to our shores, shores, blah blah blah. Um, but no mention of of any women on that ship, um, even though there were lots of interest there were there happened to be lots of interesting women on that ship including mm. like um this amazing like saxophonist there's this like wow. brilliant picture of her on board the windrush like so surrounded by men obviously okay. like in their little <laughs> sailor caps and her just like with this massive smile on her face um and there's, there's lots of other like little bits and pieces um that i picked up from around that that era of like um evidence that women sort of yeah were having a great time on board it seemed like a, a really really fun place to be um but yeah sorry just to to go back the the idea of like windrush becoming this sort of seminal moment sort of built from obviously that that type time the time when the ship docked but um really sort of became known in the national imagination on the um what would it have been in 1998 would that have been the 50th anniversary i think 48 to 98, yeah. Yeah, the 50th anniversary, so in 1998, there was a lot of literature and texts and um, a big BBC documentary. Um, and I think um, what I noticed um, from around that time was you really start to see these stories just not being considered um, by the media. You had a book written by Trevor Phillips. And I think out of something like 60 interviewees, he only interviewed like 11 women. Um, and the thing about Windrush is that it was a really unusual period of migration. Um, it, it was, the, f I think, the first time where women migrated in greater numbers over the course of the sort of uh, 1940 to 1970 period than men, which is like kind of unbelievable mm -hmm. because like it is that stereotype of like young men leaving the country and coming to England and da 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 da. Um, but yeah, it was women. They were the ones who led the vanguard. They were the ones who recruited as nurses mm -hmm. um, from places like Barbados and Jamaica. Oswald, and Enoch Powell as well. Mm -hmm. he, he had a hand in there. Um, yeah, which is wild when you think about it. Mm -hmm. It just seemed to me that, that we really, really need start rectifying the fact that um they haven't really been given the space like you know uh black and asian women who are from the caribbean haven't been given the space to talk about their experiences of of coming here and like how much they really to contribute and you know even if they didn't contribute anything their stories are still valid like um yeah so it was really important to me that the book although my sort of um brief for the book was not to make it about women I was like I'm gonna make it about women <laughs> and I think mother country even as a title like really speaks to that um mm. and hopefully in a subversive way could you just give a little bit of background about what what the term Windrush generation means the Windrush was a ship that docked in 1948 um and it has been pinpointed as the moment where there was like the first big wave of um Caribbean migration to the UK um, it's actually like, the story is actually like very complex. Like a lot of people think that it was as simple as, um, we started recruiting 
uh, people from the Caribbean and therefore that's the reason why they ended up on the ship, the Windrush, and that's what kicked off this whole big wave of migration from uh, the Caribbean to the UK. But actually, that initial ship was not wanted on these shores and there was a big debate, I think, in Parliament mm. about whether or not it was even going to be allowed to dock like um, in the UK. Um, and um, the recruitment that happened from the Caribbean, which did happen and was very widespread, um, again, wasn't necessarily something that the government wanted. It was led by uh, organisations that were um, nationalised, so like um, the NHS and um, the like Transport for England or whatever it was called back then. Um, but um, they were operating distinctly from the actual wishes of government at that time, mm. who, who had very mixed opinions mm. about migration um and whether or not you know they wanted black people especially to be coming coming over here and and taking jobs um so yeah it's, it's super complex but that that's kind of yeah thank you for that what, um, what happened <laughs> i love it um yeah so i my next question like yeah specifically you mentioned about the national health service mm -hmm. um and I read somewhere, I think it was an NHS blog, um, blog that said that um, Windrush women are basically the backbone of the NHS. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little. Yeah, for sure. As in, as as I was just saying, a lot of nurses are recruit, recruited from islands. Um, I think Barbados in particular, but also from the other islands as well. Um, and you see the legacy of that even today. A lot of um, Caribbean women will will come here and, and work as nurses. My mum worked as a nurse and I think my nanny what has worked in healthcare as well. Um, they had a really tough time when they, they came over. They were not allowed to sort of ascend in the ranks of like um, the NHS. Like they, there was usually sort of like this, I think I've heard it described, there was like this sort of white matron, I think that was maybe the term, um, who would sort of oversee a bunch of nurses from, from, from elsewhere. Um, they faced racism from the people they were treating who, you know, would be like, you know, get your filthy black hands off me, da 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 da, da um, even though they were attempting to save their lives. Um and yeah, I think I think in general it, it they helped to to build something that we're now incredibly proud of and are rarely given credit for it. Um there was a BBC documentary a few years ago which did a really great job of rectifying that. But um yeah, I think still to this day like especially now we have conversations around um, sort of skilled workers coming into this country um, and acknowledging the fact that a lot of our workforce in the NHS is are not, we're not born in this country. Um, we need to sort of take stock of the fact that it's been like that for a long time and, um, and, and be grateful for the fact that these people who had been historically mistreated uh, from the slavery era um, were gener generous enough to dedicate a portion of their lives caring for a population who like inherently didn't want them to be here. Um, so yeah, I wanted to speak as well about the the women in the the Black Power movement. And I I read a quote yesterday actually that said Black women were just part of the history of the Black Power movement. They led it in Britain. Is that from a Galden Markle? It actually was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, I think I heard you talking about this earlier, actually. But um, yeah, if you look to one example of the way that that story has been retold, um, it was in uh, John Ridley's Gorilla um, and the role of Black Panther women in the 70s um, was basically decentered from that story. And I 
wonder if if you could tell me a bit about women's role in the in the British Black Panthers. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Um, I'm not going to sort of lie and be like, this is an area of like specialism for me. Um, I know a little bit about uh, the British Pan- Panthers and I did watch the first episode of Gorilla and I'm aware it was like very controversial because, uh, yeah, as as you already say, um, <laughs> and but I le- also learned from Gala Marshall. Um, yeah, there were a lot of um, black women who are part of uh, the British Black Panther movement and just, I mean, more importantly, just like the the black power movement in the uk um who did a lot of organizing um and i've had the privilege of meeting a few of them over the years including uh gail lewis who was part of owad which stands for actually one of the things lee and i were talking about was that we both feel like we don't know enough about um the black women who are involved in the british black panthers Mm. um and that in itself says something um they're not people who have been centered in any kind of like historical retelling of that era of like British history. Mm. Um, And you really have to go out of your way to find information on them. Um, One thing that's really exciting that's happening soon and that might help to rectify that is that the Black Cultural Archives, which are based in Brixton, which is where a lot of um, the uh, British Black Panthers work centered around, they also sort of had connections with uh, the Brixton's like black women's group as well I think um Olive Morris who is um a slightly more well-known name from that era she I think helped to set up that that group um but yeah the the BCA uh having their archives di- digitized for the first time um and that means that they're going to be completely accessible on Google um so that's super exciting and I'm really hoping that like a lot more people have access to more information about those women and yeah it'll be as simple as like search uh, typing into a search bar there's very little online like mm. other than like you know you read the wikipedia page and there's some articles written by people that know her but yeah obviously she died when she was 27 yeah, yeah. um and actually I, that's probably a good time to kind of transition into the next question which is specifically about olive morris and i just wondered if like you mention it in your mm. in your essay that she's an inspiration to you um and i wonder if you could just kind of like talk a little bit about her mm-hmm. um like I don't know how you how you feel about her or like if she's had a particular influence on you in any way I think it's inspiring that she just did so much in like the short time that was here like she died very young I think 27 mm. maybe of cancer I think mm-hmm. um and in that time she managed to achieve incredible things she did a lot of work um as Charlie was saying around kind of housing in Brixton and I think she was involved in kind of squatters movements yeah, and yeah she helped to, she would um, find buildings for a lot of like um, activist organizations. So the, there was a organization called Race Today, which was mm. like published. Um, it's like a journal, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it, it published journals. And there's actually a new anthology of their journals that has come out recently on Pluto Press, which is worth taking a look at. Nice. Um, and she helped find them like a building when they didn't have anywhere to be. Um, 
And I think it's interesting thinking about her work in the context of what we were saying about the women of the, the British Black Panthers and not really knowing as much about their narratives because I think that's so often the way I think if I think about organizing now often it is um, women or femmes doing like specific types of labor within organizing spaces and again like in the civil rights movement you know you had people who were secretaries and doing things that were about writing and correspondence Mm -hmm. and they didn't get the limelight in the same way that like the Malcolm X and the Martin Luther King people standing up making these big speeches Mm -hmm. got um, that level of appreciation so it's inspiring me to me to think about the like very important like operational work that Olive was doing mm-hmm. um, and I feel like a few years ago there was a sort of campaign to draw together more information about her and I'm yeah. not sure how successful it was but it was like a call out for information wasn't there and yeah. photos and stuff yeah exactly and there are a few like beautiful pictures of her I think she had like did she have like a little afro yeah 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 I think short hair and really yeah. great arms there's people out there doing the work and like one of the things we're so conscious of at Gaudem and, and one of the reasons why we're so pleased to have been able to work on a book and that and the reason why we do a print issue each year is because we want to historicize the work we do Mm. um like we live in a very sort of precarious era when it comes to like um like media organizations Mm. and like we want to make sure that in the time that we're here hopefully it's forever um but like you know what i mean like you have to be aware of these things um that we have things that people can refer to and like that the learning that we have done and have been a part of and is there for people to find um in the future yeah i think as people of color it's so important to like document our histories and our narratives because of that like to refer back to the title of the book that erasure that happens mm-hmm. and that was something that was really pertinent about the whole kind of Windrush scandal which is what it was framed in like the the british like national press mm-hmm. um which was was it last year or the year before it was exposed that um the home office had destroyed a load of landing cards yeah um, yeah, from the Windrush, which meant that um, Caribbean elders who'd arrived during that time who hadn't kind of got passports or anything post that moment, then their like right to reside in the country was d- difficult to prove. Mm. Um, and that thing around the like such low level of respect or consideration that the government and the establishment has for like black histories was just so evident in mm-hmm. that moment mm-hmm. that it really crystallized the fact that the government's going out of its way actually to destroy our history and to destroy the evidence that we have that we are here and we've been here and we're going to be here mm. that we have to document it ourselves that's beautifully put my final question really is just kind of like how how do you ensure and i think you've already answered this partly as well like how do you ensure that the kind of names of like people in the past aren't forgotten how do we go about kind of is it is it even possible to rectify the kind of, you know, the way that history books have kind of just completely erased huge swathes of, of history? I mean, we're trying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we can't do it alone. Uh, we're still not the gatekeepers in a lot of institutions, but we now have a great resource called the internet, which has democratised a lot of things. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's nothing else we can do but like keep galdamming. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. I know there's there's other like amazing work being done. I think the Runnymede Trust are doing lots of work around improving the curriculum in the UK and making sure that it's not just about like 
Nazi Germany and the Tudors, um, the uh, <laughs> other histories and the true history of Britain and its role in kind of colonialism. empire and colonialism and imperialism is um, taught to people from a young age. I think there's like a much broader project of that that needs to happen involving like, you know, wider representation in entertainment and TV and film and publishing in every arena. And we're just doing our little corner of that and hoping yeah. that we can... Um, yeah uplift and support other people that are doing similar things thank you so much to both of you you. for your time if you liked this episode of history becomes her please subscribe rate and review if you have suggestions of history making women we should feature on our podcast or you simply want to get in touch Find us on Twitter at HBHpod, and you can find me on Twitter at RVT9. History Becomes Her is a mashable podcast created by Rachel Thompson and Maria Demenzi. Our artwork is by Vicky Lita. Our music was produced by Christiane Straker. Special thanks to Shannon Canellan and Nikolai Nikolov. And why not check out our sister podcast, Fiction Predictions? Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.